Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and deeply personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode episode is about Ang Lee's 2005 film Brokeback Mountain. I'm sure many of you have seen it. It looks at two sheep herders, Ennis Delmar and Jack Twist, who fall in love in 1963 and whose love spans decades despite them not being able to be together due to homophobia. I see this film as a grand and moving romance, a modern classic. I talk about the making of the film, why it moves me so deeply, and much more. I go into everything about this film. There are lots of spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash herheadandfilms for more information. You can also review the podcast on iTunes, tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, and or follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, so I won't delay any more. Here's my episode about Ang Lee's Brokeback Mountain. Brokeback Mountain is such a classic film in a way. I kind of see it as a modern classic. It also was an absolute phenomenon when it was released. This is the kind of film that almost everybody has seen, either in the theater when it first came out, at home, on television, it gets played often on TV. So you probably already know a lot about it, but I think it's worth going into the making of the film and sort of some behind the scenes information. And also I want to talk about its legacy and the cultural impact that it had. I am such a huge fan of this film. I I have been just ever since it came out, ever since I saw it when it first came out. So long ago, it feels like it was like another, it was another world back then, right? So before I get into my full analysis of the film and my in-depth discussion about it, I just want to go into how did this film come to be? Because it was not easy. It took a while. There were lots of (laughs) twists and turns. And I think there's some stuff that you may not know about. I think films like this that get really mainstream, really popular, and that are seen as commercial, they can maybe kind of be marginalized by cinephiles or people who are into art house. Oh, well, it must not be that good since everybody has seen it and it was very commercial. I think Brokeback Mountain is a work of art. I'm just continually in awe of it when I come across it. I remember a few years ago, maybe my mom was watching it like on HBO or something in the living room. And I went in there and I started to watch it again. I I didn't, it had been so long since I first saw it back in 2005. I think I had 
forgotten about it because 2005 I wasn't really a cinephile yet at that time but I saw it in a movie theater and I'll talk more about my experience of seeing it at that time when I talk in depth about the film and it had just fallen off my radar. I knew it was a good film but sometimes you need to be reminded and sometimes a a film being so successful and so commercial you kind of forget the artistry that's involved and it does feel like well oh gosh if this appeals to everybody then it must not be that great you know or it must not be that moving or something like that or it must be shallow because it appeals to so many people I guess I'm going off of kind of how films are today where so many of the big films are the action movies they don't have that kind of power for me and I know that recently Martin Scorsese was talking about those action films or like the Marvel films and everybody got really upset about him because he was criticizing them but I think we do sometimes and I'm guilty of this equate something being successful with it being shallow or run-of-the-mill or not particularly special but Brokeback Mountain is sort of this rare film where it was incredibly successful incredibly popular and also had great critical acclaim and also has an artistry and a beauty to it. It's amazing how it balances that. In my opinion, usually if you have a really artistic, beautiful film, it tends to not have a big viewership, but this one got that. So I just want to go into how this film was made. A lot of what I'm going to say you've probably already heard, but maybe you haven't. And I did do research and I was interested in how this was put together and how it came to be. So it was inspired by the short story of the same name written by Annie Prue. This short story appeared in The New Yorker in 1996. Diana Osana happened to read that short story. She is the co-writer of the script along with Larry McMurtry. She just happened to read it and she went to Larry McMurtry and she was like, this could be a film. I guess as she was reading it, she felt like there was a cinematic possibility in it. And at first, Larry McMurtry was not interested at all. He's not really into short fiction, he said, but he gave it a read. And once he did, he was knocked out by it. He said it was sort of that rare story that he wished he had written. Diana Osana, I think she said she wrote like a letter, like a fan letter to Annie Prue to try to get the rights to the film and go about adapting it. And Annie gave her blessing. Annie was totally fine with it. And really the finished product, Annie thought the film was fantastic. In one interview, I think she said that It was one of these rare films where it absolutely was so true to the source material. That doesn't always happen to a writer. If you hear my dog barking in the background, I apologize. There's nothing I can do about it. And I think it was very important to Diana Osana and Larry McMurtry to stay pretty true to the story as much as they could. And I think they did a great job of doing that. So Diana and Larry wrote the script and it actually languished in Hollywood for a long time. I think around seven years. Several people were attached to the film and at one point, most notably, Gus Van Sant was attached to it. And Van Sant approached some very big Hollywood stars for these roles. People like Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, very like a-lister type stars to be in it but for whatever reason they did not get cast or they didn't want to be in it. I don't know if it conflicted with their schedules but we do know that at this time this was probably in the late 90s obviously the the short story came out in 1997. All of this was happening in the late 90s early 2000s. We do know that it was considered like career suicide 
for a straight actor to play a gay character. And that's one taboo that Brokeback Mountain really shattered as a film. So both Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal, who were eventually cast in the film, they were straight. And obviously their careers did not end after the film. They went on to have very successful careers. Jake Gyllenhaal still doing very well. And Heath Ledger did up until his death in 2008. Van Sant admits that his film of Brokeback Mountain probably would have been very different from Ang Lee's. And I'm sure it would have been. Interestingly enough, Van Sant was also offered Call Me By Your Name, but did not end up directing it. That would have been really interesting, right? I don't think that would have been the same film at all, (laughs) Call Me By Your Name, if uh, Gus Van Sant had directed it. But it's really interesting how he was attached to to both of these films, but ended up not making them. He did make a film called Milk, I think around that film at that time, about Harvey Milk. I've seen it. I saw it a long, long time ago. So the film eventually landed at Focus Features, and Ang Lee was attached to it as director. And that's when it finally started to come together. It took a while. (laughs) And maybe it needed to take a while. You know, maybe sometimes films are not supposed to be made in a year. Maybe it has to go down those twists and turns so that the right people end up making it. Because I do think there's something very magical about this film. The cast is very magical. Ang Lee's direction is just meticulous and beautiful. The script by Larry... And Diana is just perfection. You know, so many things came together perfectly for this film. That doesn't always happen. When Ang Lee read the story and also the script, he was very moved by it. He actually became emotional upon reading them. He'd just come off a really difficult experience directing a 2003 film called Hulk, which was about the Incredible Hulk. It had Eric Bana, Jennifer Connelly in it. It was just a difficult shoot. It was really uh, terrible for Aang. And he was thinking of giving up filmmaking. His father had also recently died around that time. And he was just, I think, feeling very low. And he was really struggling. And he says in interviews that Brokeback Mountain really brought him back to film, back to this art form that he loved, helped him recapture the passion that he had for filmmaking. So I I think it's interesting that during this hard time that he was having, this script, this film kind of became a life raft for him, a lifesaver in a lot of ways, and the film brought him back to life. This is a very generative film in that way, where it it regenerates and renews Ang Lee, and then it also literally generates life when Heath Ledger and Michelle Williams fall in love, and then Michelle ends up giving birth to Matilda, uh, their daughter that they had together. So this was like a really powerful film and it generated the careers of the actors. All of them are now household names. Heath Ledger, Michelle Williams, Anne Hathaway, Jake Gyllenhaal. But at the time, you have to remember, they were in around their mid-20s. They were not at the level that they are today. I know that Anne Hathaway was sort of coming out of her Princess Diaries type phase where she was 
seen maybe as a more sugary actress or she was in films that were more for teenagers and this was one of her first roles where she was going to be seen seriously and I think it was the same for Michelle Williams. You know she had been on Dawson's Creek and things like that and it seemed like Brokeback Mountain was also a transitional film for her where she goes into deeper more um, serious roles and I also have covered another of her films called Wendy and Lucy by Kelly Reichardt where we definitely see the growth that Michelle Williams underwent as an actress. I think it started with Brokeback Mountain. That was in 2005. Wendy and Lucy came out in 2008. So Brokeback was so pivotal for her, probably really set her on the path that she's still on, where she has this amazing ability to balance commercial projects and like art house more serious projects and those two things sort of merge together with Brokeback and they're in perfect balance. So this film was very generative, you know, brought Angley back to life, gives birth to this beautiful love between Heath and Michelle, which unfortunately they did break up before he died, but they had a daughter. I mean, this film is responsible for like the life of Matilda, right? It really sets these actors on a great path and generates their careers or sort of takes them to the next level, I would say. Angley, he saw it as a love story. That is the main thing for Angley. This is a big, grand, beautiful love story. And that was the heart of it for him. But I he, I think he was also drawn to the characters of, of Ennis and Jack because they're outsiders as gay men at a time when homosexuality is both criminalized and demonized and seen as the worst possible thing that a man could be. They are outsiders in society. They're outsiders in their own lives in a lot of ways. And Ang Lee, he was born in Taiwan. He just always felt like an outsider. I know that his father wanted him to be like a professor or his father kind of wanted him to go into something upstanding and Ang Lee was interested in acting and directing. And it sounded like from the things that I read that in Ang Lee's family, it was just kind of looked down upon that he wanted to go into the arts or that he wanted to go into theater and filmmaking. And he kind of felt like an outsider in that way. He's felt like an outsider in America because he is foreign. I think he really related to the characters in that way too. And I think the audience probably does as well. I think some of us really know what it's like to be outsiders for various reasons. And up to this point of Brokeback Mountain, Aang's career had taken many twists and turns. He'd started out really strong and then he went through periods where he didn't have any work at all when his wife really was supporting the entire family and I think he was around in his 40s when he made Brokeback Mountain and then he eventually won Best Director at the Academy Awards for it which was a big honor for him and it just shows you like you don't have to do everything at once and he had had other really successful films before Brokeback. He had done uh, The Wedding Banquet, um, Eat, Drink, Man, Walk, Woman, the Ice Storm. He had had successful critically acclaimed films, but I do think that Brokeback Mountain kind of put him on another level. And he's since gone on to win again the Best Director Oscar for The Life of Pi. So his career has definitely taken off even more since Brokeback Mountain. And he's done a lot of diverse films. Heath Ledger was cast 
first and then Jake Gyllenhaal. I want to like acknowledge Diana Osana. Like I really want to give her a big shout out and I want to convey to you how pivotal a role Diana Osana played for Brokeback Mountain and for the film we eventually had. Not only was she the first one to read the short story by Annie Prue in 1997 and get the ball rolling, but her casting instincts were absolutely spot on. I think that casting is one of the most central parts of a film. I don't think we talk enough about this at all and it's something that I've been thinking a lot more about in the last few years. I realize that sometimes when I watch a film what works for me or what doesn't work for me is the casting and there was actually a documentary about casting directors. Yeah there was this documentary in 2012 called Casting By. It interviews various directors and then talks about casting directors and how pivotal casting directors have been in the history of cinema and stuff like that. I definitely recommend it. It's been quite a few years since I saw it but I remember just being fascinated by it because I really think casting can make or break a film and there are some films that people absolutely rave about in like cinephile circles and some of the cinephile circles that I'm in and I can't say (laughs) that I don't like that film because it's kind of shallow. It's kind of subjective too. It's like, well, I don't like that actress. You know what I mean? Or I don't like that actor. And that's what can literally be a reason why I don't watch a film or even like a film is because of the actor or actress. I'm serious. There are films that people I know online absolutely rave about and love. And I just keep my mouth shut because it's like, I hate that film because of that particular actor or actress because I can't stand them because I think they're wooden or I think they're inauthentic or there's just something about them but that's not really an intellectual answer is it well why don't you like the film well I don't like that actress (laughs) you know and it's like well why don't you like that actress or actor well I just don't (laughs) it's like a gut thing it's like a feeling and I can't always put my finger on why I don't like them that could be something something that turns people off about Brokeback. Like say you don't like Jake Gyllenhaal. Say you don't like Anne Hathaway. Well then you might not like the film. But I think casting is almost like an art. (laughs) It's almost like an art form to understand well who's who is best for this role. What is the best ensemble of of people to bring together? And Diana Osana just knew what she was doing. She had these amazing casting instincts because her daughter actually suggested Heath Ledger. And she ended up watching a marathon of Heath's films. And she even asked Larry McMurtry to watch the film Monster's Ball, which is an early role for Heath Ledger. And that film absolutely convinced Larry McMurtry that Heath was in us. Like he knew Heath was in us. Well, at that time another actor had been cast as Ennis but that actor dropped out. I don't know who that actor was. My sources my sources my like research did not name who that person was. So once the the actor dropped out Diana brought up Heath as playing Ennis and the rest is history. Diana is also the reason Michelle Williams was cast as Alma in the film. Diana had seen her on Dawson's Creek. She was impressed by her work and she suggested her as Alma. It's also because of Diana and also Larry McMurtry as the co-writer of the script that we have a fuller portrait of the women in the film. They expanded on the female characters I think more than the short story did. The short story is much more focused on Ennis and Jack and the 
film gives us a little bit more, I think, psychological insight into the women who are married to these men. And it's something I'll touch on in my discussion of the film. So on the set, Heath and Michelle started to fall in love. Everyone saw it happening, thought it was very beautiful. According to Jake Gyllenhaal, for around the first month of the shoot, the cast lived in these trailers by a river. The film was actually shot in Canada because of tax breaks, but it's supposed to like evoke Wyoming. But for tax reasons, they went with Canada. I guess it was more affordable. So for about a month, all of them were kind of living in these trailers by a river. I guess maybe getting into character or something like that as they were shooting the film. Or maybe, I guess, whatever shots needed to be done, they just needed to be there by that river in in those areas. So the cast became really close. Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal even went to like a cowboy school or cowboy camp to learn everything about being a cowboy, you know, the mannerisms and stuff like that. So this cast definitely formed a bond. You know, Heath and Michelle Williams were just crazy about each other. They quickly fell in love. She became pregnant with their daughter Matilda and had her in 2005. Sadly, Heath Ledger died in 2008 from acute drug intoxication it was really sad. I still remember hearing about it. I remember the day he died. I remember how shocking it was because he was so young and talented. I would say a recent death that was just as shocking was Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was such an extraordinary actor, Philip was, Philip Seymour. And I think Heath Ledger was on his way to being a really fascinating actor. And he did some powerful roles. I mean, from what I've seen of Heath, I do think Brokeback is his greatest performance, and I think it's just outstanding. Heath and Michelle had broken up before his death, but losing him was still profoundly devastating. And it's something that occurred to me is that we see Heath Ledger age in this film in Brokeback Mountain because it spans decades, but we'll never see him age in real life. He is forever that 20-something, right? With the, you know, the beautiful face, the beautiful hair, and he will never age. He will never change in that way. And it's so incredibly sad. I wanted to talk about an interview that Michelle Williams did with GQ in 2012 while she was promoting My Week with Marilyn, which is a film in which she played Marilyn Monroe. And she talked about losing Heath Ledger and she also talked a bit about Brokeback. I am quoting this interview at length because I think it is so extraordinary. I think that when Michelle Williams does interviews, she does them in a way that I have not seen any other actress do them, where she is so emotionally honest and raw and also one of the most eloquent people or most eloquent actresses or celebrities that I've ever come across. I just want to sit on a couch with her and talk about life and love and cinema and I just want to be in the presence of Michelle Williams because I think she's so extraordinary as like a person and an actress. I really almost feel like we haven't seen the full range of what she can do but she shines in Brokeback Mountain. She shines in every role she does in Wendy and Lucy and Meek's Cutoff in so many films that I've seen her in and I think she's just going to continue to get better and better but this interview moved me so much and this particular segment that I'm going to read out to you I just have to share it I want it to be in this episode I, I just want it I want you to hear it I want you to feel it and I want to say the words with my own voice because they're just stunning what she gets at in this interview is such like a searing 
moving articulation of grief and loss that I've just rarely come across, especially in something like a celebrity profile or, you know, an interview for a magazine. It's like those are usually very sort of shallow and on the surface and she takes us much deeper. And a link to the full interview will be in the show notes and links to all my sources and all my research will also be in the show notes. So I'm going to quote it and it's a very long passage, but I think it's worth it. Quote, when William sits down for our third and final meeting, I ask her about Brokeback Mountain. I do want to know about her memories of making the film, but we both also know where this is going. She tells me about being Ang Lee's first auditionee for the role. At eight o'clock in the morning, and how she tried to sell him on the notion that landscapes are inherent in your character, and so her Montana upbringing made her the right choice. Maybe that's even what swayed him. Either way, he chose wisely. There are plenty of fine Michelle Williams performances from before then. Her 2003 cameo in The Station Agent, for instance. But this was something more. The stillness and broken love of her despair seemed to anchor the grander melodrama that surrounded. I ask whether it was a difficult role to play. She pauses for a moment then answers, not compared to what everybody else had to do. When she and Heath Ledger saw the finished film together, they complimented each other, but beyond that, they weren't sure. I didn't know what to make of it, she says. Maybe when you see something different for the first time, you don't know how to categorize it. It doesn't really fit with anything else. Like the first time you listen to Bjork, the first time you eat sashimi. She hasn't seen it since but she does know what she thinks of it now. I think it's a great film, and it's probably obvious, but she pauses for a long time. And when she picks up the thought, her voice is quieter and higher. Well, he's really quite astounding in it, Heath. I ask her why she thinks they were so drawn to each other. A long pause follows. All the pauses will be long from now on. There's an answer that I know, she says but I don't want to say. She talks around this not saying for a while, then says, Our initial meeting, the circumstances of how we first met, were cosmic or something. They were together through the shoot, and soon she was pregnant. Yeah, a lot of things happened at once, she says. It's a bit like we had a lot of things to do because we didn't have a lot of time or something. We also talk about a book that was important to her in the aftermath of Ledger's death, Rebecca Solnit's A Field Guide to Getting Lost. Williams once quoted a line on Nightline that helped her, When you have truly lost everything, then at least you can become rich in loss. The strange thing is that Williams misquoted, and for this purpose improved, Solnit's actual words. And when everything else is gone, you can be rich in loss. I didn't know I had done that, she says, and explains why the thought was so useful to her. The rich in loss made me laugh. I would just think, filthy, stinking rich, filthy, stinking rich, in a perverse gallows humor kind of way. It made me laugh. It made me feel drunk. It made me feel high with loss, in that tightrope kind of way of sadness and hysteria. And when you don't have ideas like that, it feels too messy to bear. It gave me great comfort. It was something I would repeat to myself like a mantra, because for some time it felt like we had lost everything. And those words, that idea, calmed me down. There is a question I have been wanting to understand the answer to but have been feeling that I simply can't ask. Eventually, I just ask it anyways. 
Do you think there was a part of you that imagined the two of you would somehow end up together? Immediately, I wished that I hadn't. The look on her face, a kind of juddering, visceral alarm at what has been said. I don't wish to see that look many more times in my life. That would make me way too sad to answer, she says quickly, and I hurriedly begin another question about something completely different, hoping that if I say it fast enough, these new words will chase the old words away from where they are hanging in the air between us, and maybe she will let me pretend that it was something I never said. No, she says. I said it would make me too sad to answer, but it's also, and she nods, even as her voice breaks once more with tears, one of my favorite things to imagine. And through the tears, a beaming, almost beatific smile stretches, room-wide across her face. It's actually one of my favorite places to visit, unquote. I just had to share that. That interview is by Chris Heath, and I think that he did an extraordinary job of doing the interview, of writing about the interview. That moment where she says that that's one of her favorite places to visit, to imagine the life that her and Heath Ledger might have had. You know, he was struggling with drugs, and I think that was a big reason why they broke up. Maybe he would have got clean. Maybe they could have gotten back together. You don't know. Those possibilities are over and she'll never know. And it sounds like when she fell in love with Heath on the set, like she said, it was cosmic. It was something special. And I wonder if she's ever found that again. I wonder if she's ever felt it again. I don't know. When she brought up Rebecca Solnit, that shocked me (laughs) because I love Rebecca Solnit and I especially love A Field Guide to Getting Lost. It's a book that I read when I was very young, probably 19 or 20. And I know it had to be after my father's death. It was definitely a book that I read after I lost my father. I lost him when I was 16 in 2006. And I remember finding A Field Guide to Getting Lost at the Dollar Tree. And for those of you who don't know, the Dollar Tree here... Um, where I live in the South. It's a store where everything is a dollar, including books. They have a book section. It's usually schlock. It's usually crap books, <laughs> like self-help or like weird memoirs or whatever. But one day, every once in a while, you'll find a great book. Like I still remember the thrill of finding a volume of Susan Sontag's diaries at the Dollar Tree. I got it for a dollar. (laughs) And I remember finding a field guide to getting lost. I wish I still had my copy. I don't. And I just devoured that book. It was one of the most beautiful books I'd ever read up to that point. And the way that Rebecca Solnit wrote about loss and art and history and activism and so many things in that book, the way she wove together like memoir and and history, it was just extraordinary to know that Michelle Williams was also influenced by that book. It's actually been really influential. I know that Beyonce, I think she named Blue Ivy after that book or she was inspired by that book, I think, or maybe a quote out of it or something like that. But she was definitely inspired by the book and so was Michelle Williams and so was I. It's like one of these books that I think a lot of people just somehow it comes into your life and you connect to it. And so for her to mention it in that interview was fascinating to me and everything in it is just so beautiful. Like that film 
will always be so special because it brought them together. Finally, I just want to talk a little bit about the cultural importance of the film and its legacy, and then I'll get into my own thoughts and feelings and discussion of Brokeback Mountain. It made over $170 million at the box office. It did not have a big budget when it was made, so it was a big, big box office success. As I said earlier, Ang Lee won Best Director at the Oscars. The Oscars um, also gave it Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Original Score, but it did not receive Best Picture that year, as many of us know, because <laughs> it was so controversial. Crash won instead. Let's not talk about it, right? I think, <laughs> I think all of us were scarred by Crash winning Best Picture. That was a head-scratcher. I think we can all agree. And the Academy continues to have a lot of head scratchers in terms of what wins for Best Picture. I think Brokeback absolutely should have won Best Picture. And I think if you were to watch those two films back to back or something, you would realize that 15 years later, the film with the artistry and the the film that holds up and will stand the test of time, I truly believe, is Brokeback Mountain. As I also said earlier, this film showed that straight actors could play gay characters without it ending their careers. It was also a film, you know, this was a mainstream box office hit, right? And it actually showed some sex between two gay characters, two male gay characters. Philadelphia had come before this. Some other films had come before it about gay characters, but they had been pretty tame when it came to the sex and to sex scenes. I think in Philadelphia, Tom Hanks and Antonio Banderas don't even kiss. I I, I mean, don't quote me on it, but there's very little sexual intimacy between those two characters, unfortunately. It was just so controversial to, to show gay men that way or gay characters being affectionate or intimate with each other on screen but broke back there there are love scenes there is kissing there is all of that it also seemed to bring gay stories into the mainstream to show that such stories were viable and could be profitable at the box office. But I also think it showed that a grand love story, it's also probably called a melodrama as well, but a grand love story about two gay characters could actually appeal to middle America. And I would imagine that it opened the doors for more films about gay people. It sort of, you know, opened some doors, I think. Would we have Carol without Brokeback Mountain? Would we have Moonlight without Brokeback Mountain? You know, just in the last five years or so, we've had some really great films about gays and lesbians. Doesn't mean it's perfect by any means, but I think it did open the doors. And interestingly enough, the film was actually first released in middle America. It was released in smaller towns, rural areas across the country. This was part of its promotional strategy. And then word of mouth started to spread. There were a few theaters that tried to ban the film because we know homophobia is alive and well. But overall, It was a smash hit and a huge success. You know, Jake Gyllenhaal did an interview too where he he likes to think that Brokeback was maybe a tiny, tiny part of the eventual legalization of gay marriage here in the United States. It didn't, you know, make it happen or anything, but it may have just been a small part of it. And that when he got news that gay marriage had been legalized, that he was very happy to hear about that. So this film was 
a huge success and it was really embraced by a wide swath of filmgoers and I do wonder if it helped to change some views. I'm not saying Brokeback Mountain was a magic potion or anything that erased homophobia because that's not true. It's alive and well as I said but it may have changed some hearts and minds. We, we never know what effect a film can have or what impact it can have and the way it can affect the world and I think it can do positive things it depends it really does I would never say that like film can change the world I mean I don't know about that there have been some really big films that have helped to change laws a short film about killing by Krzysztof Kieślowski comes to mind it helped really to end the death penalty in Poland there are films throughout history where people were very moved by them or they activated something in the population you know in the country sometimes film it doesn't change the world but it helps change things it's it's one piece of the puzzle that kind of helps move things in a better direction you know I would imagine that because of the broad appeal of this film and its availability in smaller towns there were a lot of young people or you know, people of all ages who for the first time perhaps saw themselves reflected on the screen. And I think that should also be acknowledged as a very important experience and legacy of this film, that there were probably people all over this country in middle America who for the first time went and saw gay characters that they could relate to maybe, saw the intimacy and the love and the beauty of that love. Maybe they felt that themselves. You know, maybe a boy who was gay saw that film or a young girl who was a lesbian like on the screen they see their own desires or their own love their own identity reflected in a like really beautiful positive also painful way there is pain in this film there is suffering certainly but I think this love story is incredibly beautiful and how powerful to see yourself represented in that way and to maybe also feel like the people around you are seeing it and maybe it will open their minds a little bit I don't know I mean we're still dealing a lot with the homophobia we're still dealing with this so I would never say that Brokeback solved anything but I like to think that it might have had an impact on individual hearts and minds in some way for some people and this film was considered so important that it was chosen to be preserved by the National Film Registry in 2018. This is a really important honor and it means that it's considered an essential film in American cinema history and that it sort of says something about our country and captures something that should be preserved and it will be forever preserved. I think it's amazing that it was chosen for that. So I have given you some behind the scenes info and all kinds of stuff and now I'm gonna talk about the film. to say about this film. Watching it again for the first time in quite a few years. I know a few years ago I said that I walked in the living room one day and my mom was watching it and I re-watched it but that was 
quite a few years ago. It's been a good amount of time since I really sat down, watched this film from beginning to end. It did not disappoint, and my opinion of it remains that I do think it is a modern classic. I do think it's one of the great love stories, honestly. There's something magical about it in the way that all the parts came together, from the writing of the script, to the casting of the actors and actresses, to the direction, to the music. Films like this are quite rare. Something I was thinking about recently, we're living in a time right now where we are bombarded with content. Netflix specifically puts out a lot of TV shows and now they're producing films. They are behind The Irishman by Martin Scorsese, all kinds of different films most recently that were nominated for some Oscars and have been pretty popular. But you add Amazon, you add Hulu, you add all these different streaming services just weekly or monthly. Shows are coming out, movies are coming out, and I have to wonder how much of this is going to stand the test of time? Look at Disney+. Plus; They're putting out content too now. We Just because we have a lot of stuff to choose from now doesn't necessarily mean that all that stuff is great high quality that's going to stand the test of time. I can't keep up with it. There's actually a lot of the Netflix films I haven't even watched. I haven't seen The Irishman. I haven't seen Marriage Story. There's a lot out there that I haven't even watched yet. I, I don't have the time really. So I can't speak to the quality of those films. I can't give you my opinion of those films. Am I glad that Netflix is helping filmmakers or funding films by people who would maybe not normally have their films made? Yeah, it's very clear that studios nowadays are not interested in like the, I don't know what the phrase would be for these films. They're not independent films, but they're not like the big tentpole films. They're not the big action superhero films. They would be films just about real people, you know, everyday people. They wouldn't have a bunch of action or, you know, about people's everyday lives and the problems of the human condition. Condition. They don't make, they wouldn't make hundreds of millions of dollars, but maybe, you know, a little bit of money. We don't see films like that anymore that are made for, for adults, for regular people about their lives and their problems. Everything is either for like teenagers or it's superhero and action films. There's not a lot in between anymore. I do see the way that Netflix has filled that gap. They are funding films by important filmmakers. Amazon has been doing something similar. I'm not against that. I never would be, but I do feel like we are just being bombarded constantly by movies and TV shows. And I don't know if people are going to be watching these things 10 or 20 years from now. The way that, say, films that were made in the 90s, 30 years ago, people are still obsessed with them and in love with them. Or TV shows that were made back then that people watch constantly and never get tired of. My favorite TV show is The Golden Girls. <laughs> I could watch the episodes over and over forever. There's really no show like that anymore. So um, I just think it's something to think about. Like what will stand the test of time? I guess that's why I don't watch a lot of new releases. I don't watch a lot of contemporary stuff. I talked about that in another episode. I try to watch more recent releases that people are raving about and talking about even in the art house world. And I find myself often coming away from those films just indifferent to them. And maybe it's me. It must be me. I have my own 
own idiosyncratic taste. I have my own particular interests. I am drawn to certain subject subject matters. For instance, I'm not interested in films about couples or relationships or marriage. That's me. It's it's not something that compels me very much. I don't cover a lot of films like that on this podcast. I've covered a few. I'm more drawn to films about women. I'm drawn to films about loneliness. I'm drawn to different subjects than maybe some other people are. When I try to watch the newer releases, I don't hate them all the time, but I just kind of feel like, well... I'm not going to remember that. It didn't make any impact on me. It didn't affect me in any way. What is this director trying to actually say? You're given this budget. You're given this chance to make a film. What are you actually trying to say? And sometimes I'm madder at films that say nothing. Or I'm madder at films that don't try to do anything. I'd almost prefer a film that takes risks or does something out of the ordinary. Because at least... (laughs) At least you're doing something with this budget, with this time. I sat here for an hour and a half watching this. What was the point of it? Like, I guess sometimes I watch these films. There's no artistry. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. There's no point of view. There's no... I mean, I feel that way when I read some books or if I read certain kinds of poetry. I'm like, what what was the point of this? And I guess that just comes from me. Like, when I write things, I write in a very personal, confessional way. And if you think about it when I do these episodes, they're very personal at times and very open and raw. And I guess I just want to take, I want to take whatever I'm doing and I want to actually try to, like, communicate something. I want to say something. I want to make you feel something or think about something. I don't take it lightly that people listen to these episodes or spend a little bit of their time with me. I want you to come away from it with something to think about or something to feel. And I guess I'm the same way with my writing. Like if you're not putting it out there, if you're not going for it, if you're not being, if you're not just doing it with passion and doing it with a perspective, I I don't know. It's just sometimes it's the feel that have no perspective at all that bother me the most where I'm like okay you had an hour and a half or two hours to do something to say something about the human condition to say something about life and I'm not just talking about dramas it could be a comedy whatever what are you doing and I'm not talking about art that has to be didactic or has to teach me something or educate me you know, don't misinterpret me. I'm just talking about creating art that matters, creating art that is doing something that is having an effect on the audience. That's what I'm trying to say. And I think some of the Netflix stuff or some of the shows and movies can be a little bit like junk food. You take it in, you wanted it, you craved it. And then afterwards, you don't feel full you feel empty. You don't feel much of anything. It just kind of numbed you, I guess. And I guess there's art that's that way too, where you take it in. Okay, I watched it. It killed some time. Now I'm going to go on to the next thing. And I guess I'm bothered by that on some level. I don't know. I'm not saying everything that you watch has to be like a Terrence Malick film or something or has to be some grand experience. I understand that we go to art for different reasons. Sometimes we want escapism. Sometimes we want a personal connection. It depends on what mood we're in. But I guess my time is more and more limited. 
I have so much to do in my life. I'm so busy. When I do get time to watch something, I guess I want it to be worth it. And it's the same with books or something like that. I want an experience, I guess, or I want to be moved or I want my, I want to think about something in a different way or I want to feel like I had this, this experience. I don't know how else to put it. And I wonder sometimes like what's really going to last because, and I know I went on a tangent, but that's par for the course with this podcast. I don't care anymore. I have things to say and I have to say them. On to Brokeback. What I, Mike, the way this connects with Brokeback is that this film was made 15 years ago and it still holds up. And I think another 15 years will go by and it will still it it will continue to hold up. It is that kind of film. And those films can be very rare. And when I'm choosing films for the podcast, this doesn't always happen. I've covered some films that were maybe not considered the best or whatever. But I choose films based on feeling. I choose films based on my gut and my instinct. It doesn't mean that every film I talk about and every film I love is going to be some amazing classic. But there's something in the film that I identify with or I connect to. For me, Brokeback has that quality to it. And to other people, it may not. But it's interesting to to look back 15 years. I saw it in the theater when it was released. I remember a lot of the attention that uh, it was given and it was showered with. I remember a lot of that. And I feel like even when I watch it, rewatch it, it stands the test of time for me so far. It's not a supposed to be didactic in any way. It's not hitting you over the head with a message, but it is a very powerful film about love, but also about homophobia. And I'll get into all these themes as I talk about the film. But what I'm trying to say is that we're overwhelmed with the amount of films and TV shows these days, and it can make it hard for us to uh, sift through all of that and figure out what is gonna resonate years and years from now because everything coming out is not going to be rewatched endlessly is not going to be lauded in a decade or two and I'm not saying it is your job to only consume things that are going to last enjoy what you watch I'm not here to judge anybody but it's something that I think about and I thought maybe you would want to think about is what are the things that people are still going to be watching years and years from now? What will we look back on and say, wow, that was a turning point, or that was really important, or that's a masterpiece? Because often in the moment, you don't know it. There's something really extraordinary about Roger Ebert to me. He's passed away, as all of you know. He is probably one of my favorite film people, I will be honest. I really love that documentary about him called Life Itself, which is about him and his life and his love of movies. There was something amazing about Roger in that he obviously knew when a film, you know, was commercial and popular. His his review would reflect that as well. Like, he always did a really good job of identifying the great films but sometimes he would love a film that was kind of small and that not a lot of people knew about or had heard about and I find sometimes when I'm doing doing episodes or thinking about films I want to cover I'll google it and his review will pop up and he'll have given it four stars and like nobody talks about this film (laughs) or I'm not talking about Brokeback but the particular film that I was googling it's just amazing to me how he was able to tap into the pop popular films and see the quality of those and then he also seemed to see the quality of like the obscure films too and with Brokeback 
he was right on the nose about it and he gave it four stars and really loved it. I don't know. He had that quality of being able to identify films that would stand the test of time. And I think that's kind of a rare ability to be able in the moment, you know, in the the context of when the film is released, to have this feeling that, oh, in a decade or two decades, people will still be talking about this film. And I feel like Roger Ebert kind of had a feeling for that and I just think it's kind of fascinating I wanted to I wanted to mention it but with Brokeback this film holds up I'm gonna talk about it and we're gonna talk about why it holds up what it's looking at the performances some of the themes there's so much in this film there's a richness to this film it's a product of Diana Osana and Larry McMurtry script and of course it is because of the origin story by Annie Prue, that original story in 1997. But it's also Ang Lee. Ang Lee did a fantastic job with this film. It almost feels at times like a painting more than a film. And I'll talk about the landscape and all kinds of stuff. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through the film and talk about key scenes that I love and what I think these scenes say in a broader way about society, about the characters, about the setting, about various themes. I do think in a way this film is set up into two parts. This is the way I see it structured is that time when Jack and Ennis are on Brokeback Mountain together and that lays the foundation for the rest of their lives. To me, on a really deep level, this film is about an experience in your life that shapes you forever, that you cannot let go And often it happens in your youth. And Ennis and Jack, I think, are supposed to be pretty young when this happens, when they meet. And I think on on one level, anybody can relate to that. I think what's also powerful about Brokeback is that it is both universal and specific. And that specificity should never be erased. I'm always frustrated with people who say, oh, but it's universal, it's universal. And they often want to say that about films that are about marginalized people. And yes, there are one Wonderful universal themes in Brokeback Mountain, from loneliness to the struggle to love to working class struggle, all kinds of things in this film are very universal. But at the heart of the film, it's homophobia. It is about how Jack and Ennis cannot be together because of the society and the time period in which they live. And that should never not be looked at. So it balances both, where there's themes in it that anybody can relate to. That somebody like me, you know, a young woman living in the South in 2020 can relate to this story about, you know, two gay men in the West in the 1960s. I absolutely relate to certain things about it. At the same time, I understand that there are things about it that I will never understand. I will never know what it is like for gays and lesbians and the homophobia that they face or what, you know, a young gay little boy goes through being called names and being beat up because he is attracted to the same sex, right? Like, I will never know that experience. I can have compassion for it. I can fight to try to change this world to make it so that that little boy or that little girl who loves other girls, that they can be who they are and they can express themselves and be themselves and be 
comfortable with their sexuality and live in a safe world for them. But I'll never fully know what that experience is like for them. And just as I will never know what a person of color goes through or any kind of different groups of people, we are all just living our own lives and we're very separate from each other. But I do think that art and specifically cinema can be a way for us to enter one another's lives and experiences and consciousness. And it can give us more compassion. It can give us more understanding about the diversity and the complexity of the human condition. And that is what this film does so well. This film is about homophobia. It's about the damage of homophobia, the just destruction of it, the destruction to the human soul of this kind of hatred and what it does to people. It also, for me, as I said, is about a defining experience in your life that you will never escape or be free from. For me, that would be the death of my father when I was 16 years old. It happened in 2006. I circle around to it constantly on this podcast because this is the only outlet that I have to talk about my grief and my struggle with it. And because it was almost like this domino that set all these other dominoes crashing down, it's like it was this thing that brought my life to a halt and detonated my life, honestly. And because of it, every all these other things happened from depression, anxiety, agoraphobia, poverty, health issues, disability. And so much of what I've been through has been, can be traced back to the root of his death. And I see with Ennis and Jack that the root of their lives is Brokeback Mountain. And it will always be Brokeback Mountain. That is why Jack wants his ashes put on Brokeback Mountain because he knows that everything he is stems from meeting Ennis and what happened between the two of them and the love that they had for each other. And of course, society kept them from one another. In a way, this film It's a Western and it's sort of like an old Hollywood melodrama. As I was watching it, I was reminded a lot of like Douglas Sirk's films, like Written on the Wind, All That Heaven Allows, Imitation of Life. It felt like this big grand melodrama, like in the the way that Douglas Sirk made them, or even thinking of like Todd Haynes' Far From Heaven. I have an episode about that and Todd Haynes was inspired by Douglas Sirk. That's what Brokeback felt like to me, this big grand melodrama melodrama, made you cry, made you feel. For better or worse, you can judge me, whatever. I love it. I love melodramas. That's something that I realized about myself in the last year or so when I did my Todd Haynes episode about Far From Heaven and I was going back and watching some more Douglas Sirk. I was like, this is what I love. I love melodrama. Do I love my minimalist art house? Yeah, but I also love melodrama and I have no problem embracing that part of myself. But as I said, Brokeback Mountain and this relationship between Ennis and Jack, this is the foundation for everything. It's why a huge chunk of the film lingers on it. You know, it's why the film begins with it because everything else branches off from it. It's the roots and everything else is sort of the tree. I see the film structured as Brokeback Mountain and then 
at the aftermath of Brokeback Mountain, everything that comes after. I mean, at that time, Ennis already knew Alma and they were engaged, but then Jack Twist goes on to meet Lorraine and all of that. We see their lives. It's it's interesting because we see their lives together on Brokeback and then we see their lives where they're separate from each other and they have to live without each other. They struggle and it's almost like they, they sort of live, they stagger through life a bit because they're not together. They have to find a way to go on only seeing each other a few times a year over the the almost two decades that they know each other until Jack's death. That's the heartbreaking part. Ang Lee, you know, he gives us the love. He gives us the romance. He gives us the connection that these two men feel. And then he takes it away. The story does that as well. And we feel the pain of them having to live apart and never being able to be together. But the film begins in 1963 in Signal, Wyoming. Much of the film takes place in Wyoming. And then when Jack moves to Texas, film alternates between Wyoming and Texas. Heath Ledger is the the character that the film begins with. And I do think that he is the heart of the film. He is the primary focus of the film in a lot of ways. Heath Ledger was in us. Larry McMurtry saw it when he saw Heath in Monster's Ball. He knew Heath Ledger was born to play Ennis and you feel it immediately. I was thinking about it as I watched the film. Just as soon as Heath is on the screen as Ennis Delmar, Ennis Delmar, Jack Twist, and I forgot to go into the characters and who plays them. Ennis Delmar is played by Heath Ledger. Jack Twist is played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Alma is played by Michelle Williams. Lorene is played by Anne Hathaway and these are the main characters. And they are the heart of it. This cast is superb, as I said earlier. There is, there's acting and then there's acting. You know what I mean? And I would say Heath Ledger and Michelle Williams in particular with this film are on another level. And that's not to put down Jake Gyllenhaal or Anne Hathaway. Excellent actors. But for me, when Michelle Williams and Heath Ledger are on screen, I am drawn to them. I can't take my eyes off them. Their performances move me the most, particularly Michelle Williams. When I was thinking about how I wanted to talk about this film, it was really hard to just not talk about Michelle Williams. (laughs) She has really become one of my favorite actresses, I have to be honest. I covered another one of her films on the podcast by Kelly Reichardt called Wendy and Lucy, and you can check out that episode if you would like. I don't even think she's begun to show everything that she's capable of, but she showed a whole lot of it in Brokeback Mountain. And I'll talk about some of those scenes. But Heath Ledger, and and unfortunately Heath Ledger died in 2008, as many of you know. I don't think Heath got the chance he should have gotten to show everything he could do. He didn't do a lot of films because he died so young. He died in his late 20s. And you just think about the wasted potential. Not only what was wasted of Matilda not having her father, that is the ultimate devastation. I know personally when you lose a parent and what his family lost, what Michelle lost, because I'm sure Michelle still thinks about it. I mean, she did in that interview I shared in 2012. She had already thought about them being together and what that life would have been like. And now she's a single mother trying to raise Matilda. And Matilda will always be a reminder of Heath and of what they were, what they could have been. So his family, the people who loved him, 
experienced a major loss. Cinema experienced a loss because the work that he does in this film is extraordinary. Everything about him, the way that he wears the clothes, the way he stands, the look on his face, the way he smokes his cigarette, like everything, everything about him is so specific and so amazing. And in an interview that Heath Ledger did with this podcast called Film Buffs Forecast, Ennis Oh, Heath talked about Ennis and he talked about how he wanted everything about Ennis to sort of be clenched. Like even his mouth is clenched. And he said that he wanted any words to fight their way out. I I love that description and the way he talked about that. That's how I feel about Ennis is he is an incredibly interior person. He is the kind of person who keeps everything inside. Even his words are clipped. They're short. But his voice is very deep and it's almost like that voice comes from the depths of himself. It comes from very deep inside him. I relate to Ennis because I'm somebody who's really introverted, shy. It's hard for me. I have social anxiety. It's hard for me to talk to people when I'm in that kind of environment. I'm just very within myself. I keep things inside. I don't trust people. I don't let people in because of various experiences in my life and how much I've just been abandoned and let down by people and not had people who were really there for me when I needed them and people who have left me and treated me badly. And so I'm just very within myself and very separate. I think that's why Ennis compels me so much. Heath just naturally embodies Ennis, I think. We don't know a lot about him. He lost his parents when he was really young to an auto automobile accident. He was raised by his brother and sister. At one time, he says that his sister got married and then his brother got married. And so he was pretty much out of the house. It sounds like he did not finish school. I don't even know if he went to high school. Ennis is someone who's always been very alone. And he's had to look after himself and take care of himself. He's been pretty much abandoned by everybody or he's lost a lot of people. I'm sure losing both your parents at a young age would have a huge impact on you. So Heath's performance is it's immediate when he's on screen. He goes to this place um, to get work, to like herd sheep and stuff like that. That's how he meets Jack, Jack Twist. Both of them are young. They are put on this assignment to herd sheep on Brokeback Mountain. Just the two of them and their horses and the sheep. (laughs) And that's what they're supposed to do. One of them is supposed to stay at the main camp. And then one of them is supposed to sleep out with the sheep to make sure that none of them run away. And so this is how the two of them are brought together. They don't make a lot of money doing this, but they obviously make enough to survive and that's why they're doing it. Jack also... Uh, I think rides bulls or something like that in the rodeo. But this seems to be their main income and sort of the main thing that they do. When they're on Brokeback Mountain, this and this is a huge portion of the film, that's when they start to fall in love. Nature in this film, I have to bring up, the landscapes of this film are incredibly sublime. Even though it's shot in Canada, it looks how you would imagine Wyoming and the West to look. Many of the outdoor scenes look like paintings 
paintings. And a lot of the scenes almost don't even have people in them. You just see the sheep. You see the sky with the clouds. You see the mountains. You see the river. They look like paintings. They really do. And I know Ang Lee was inspired by various painters and landscape photographers and things like that. Ang Ang Lee said in one interview that they even did a little bit of CGI and they added some clouds at times. But the film is truly majestic and it overwhelmed me when I was watching it again. Almost almost every scene in Brokeback, a lot of it when they're in the nature part, like half the screen is the sky. This big blue massive sky and the nature itself, you know, the mountains and the trees are just massive and our characters, Innes and Jack, look so tiny next to that. It gives you this perspective too when you see the natural wonder of the world, right? Like these landscapes. You realize how small human beings are, how small our dramas are, and yet they affect us very deeply. In this natural environment, Ennis and Jack, it's really the only freedom that they get to have. And it may be why they're attracted to the job itself. It's a very difficult job, but they keep doing it. And I know they do it to survive, but there has to be something about it that keeps them wanting to do it. And I wonder if being in nature, being in the mountains, I wonder if that's part of it. Just the the wondrous beauty of that. The film reminded me of this excellent documentary called Sweetgrass. It came out in 2009, so it came out after Brokeback Mountain. And it looks at... uh, shepherds in the mountains of Montana and it just shows them herding these sheep that's all that's all the film is the guys in it look a lot like innocent jack you know they are got that cowboy look it was actually shot in 2003 so it was shot before brokeback mountain came out but the documentary itself didn't come out until 2009 i watched this film a few years ago because sometimes i really love to watch unconventional nature films unconventional nature documentaries where not a lot happens but you just kind of see nature. Sweetgrass is one I love. Leviathan is another one. Leviathan shows um, the fishing industry, but it the camera is put into the water. You see it from the perspective of the water and you see the fish and stuff like that. It's hard to describe to you. I watched another film called Bovines, which literally is just cows in a field. I can't explain to you, but these films are like meditation to me. Like they're so calming to just watch that. I don't, I can't explain it to you. Bovines was great. Microcosmos is another really great one that looks at, um, it goes into the grass and looks at all the little creatures that live in the grass. Wings of Migration is another favorite and it's about um, geese and their migration in the sky. And so it just shows geese flying in the sky. This is the kind of stuff I watch sometimes. I don't know why. I find it so comforting. And so when I was watching Brokeback Mountain, something that really comforted me was the landscape and the nature. And I just thought it was incredibly beautiful. And the thing about Brokeback Mountain is even though this is a very commercial, successful film, although when they were making it, they did not have a big budget. They did not know that it would be as successful as it was. It made almost $200 million at the box office. They didn't know that. Even though it's like this big Western melodrama and it's commercial, it it has art house elements to it, specifically the silence in this film. And that goes with 
the nature part, the first few minutes of the film when we're introduced to Ennis and he's waiting to get this job on the mountain and he meets Jack and stuff like that, there's almost all silence. The characters throughout the film do not speak a lot. There are huge gaps in the film where there's hardly any human spoken dialogue. And that's very unusual. Most films, especially nowadays, the characters are always talking. There's not a lot of moments where the dialogue just stops or something. And I noticed that in Brokeback Mountain, that there was this wonderful silence that permeated the film, especially when Jack and Ennis are on the mountain. Much Much of it is silent, except for natural ambient sounds like the sheep or the streams. And there's something about this film, like the thing about Jack and Ennis and their love story is that they don't have to talk. (laughs) They don't have to say a bunch of words all the time. They do talk. They talk about their lives. Ennis opens up to Jack in a really beautiful way. He talks more and says more to Jack than he probably does to anybody else in his life. What is happening between Jack and Ennis is something that's intangible something that can't be verbalized or communicated. And it reminds me when Michelle Williams said that her meeting Heath Ledger and them falling in love was cosmic, that there was something cosmic about Jack and Ennis. Sometimes you meet people and you don't understand why you feel connected to them, but you feel an immediate connection to them beyond language. I mean, yeah, you get to know each other and you talk and you have a lot in common, but then there's something else that is drawing you to that other person and you can't always explain it or make sense of it. And so Jack and Ennis don't need to talk for hours on end. They just feel this magnetic hold. They are this magnetic force and power that's bringing them together. There's a sexual tension up into the time when they start to be intimate with each other. There, There's definitely a sexual thing there. They'll still glimpses at each other here and there. They'll linger on each other when the other one is not looking. So you can feel there's a sexual attraction too, but there's there's just something there between them. Something interesting I noticed when Ennis and Jack were on Brokeback is that both of them are very masculine and they fit this stereotype in our minds of the cowboy, the manly man, the macho man. On the mountain, they do very intense physical labor, setting up the camp, picking up the sheep, all kinds of stuff. But their masculinity is more complicated by their same-sex attraction, I think. And even at times, like, we'll see a sensitivity in them that we don't always see in men. So what I'm trying to say is that I think the representation of masculinity in this film and of men is more complicated than we sometimes get in other films, where it's just, oh, the macho man. Yeah, they're physical and masculine, but there are, there's a softness to them too and a sensitivity as well that we see. I think that we're reminded like of what's expected of men, how damaging those expectations can be. And I wonder if that's why Ennis is so within himself and he's so closed off. Like he's had to, he's had to do that to make sure that he never slips up you know, that he never lets anybody know that he is attracted to men. That could be something that he's known since he was very young. And he's very aware 
that if anybody thinks that he is gay, that that could be dangerous. And I, I wonder if Ennis's life is really, and Jack's, their lives have been about hiding, performing, acting, keeping this secret that they know and that only they know. And I think that when Ennis and Jack are together on Brokeback Mountain, they no longer have to lie or live that lie that's been so damaging not only to themselves, but that will be damaging later on to their female partners, Alma and Lorraine. These women discover that the men that they thought loved them don't really love them. Don't love them in the way that they thought. And if you think about it, in a lot of ways, Ennis and Jack both kind of fail at masculinity in some ways. For instance, Ennis doesn't make a lot of money. He's not really able to, to provide for his family the way that men are expected to provide for them. Jack ends up marrying Lorraine, who's richer than him and has more money. And often that scene is emasculating when a man is with a woman who makes more money. And he is sort of emasculated by Lorraine's father. You know, her father comes in and wants to tell him what to do and things like that. And in a lot of ways, Jack is subordinated. Um, or subordinate within that relationship and that power dynamic. It's like he doesn't have the power and it's expected that a man is going to be the patriarch of the family. And he's kind of fails at that. People speak disparagingly of Jack. They put Jack down. He's not strong enough. He's not powerful enough. He's not successful enough. And I think both of them experience that as well of where they feel like they're not man enough, right? And that's so damaging. It's so damaging, those expectations that are put on men. And I do believe something should be done about it and that what it means to be a man should be changed, like, it's so toxic. It's often wrapped up in violence as well. And we see that from Ennis. He's violent throughout the film. And that violence for him, I think, springs from his fear of being found out and which becomes a fear of other people and a fear of being seen, a fear of being discovered. He has this violence and this rage in him because obviously he's having to hide all the time and he's not able to live the way that he wants to live and be who he wants to be. As I said before, Jack and Ennis open up to each other. They talk about their their issues with their families. Jack does not have a good relationship with his father. His father doesn't seem to really care about him very much. Ennis left school early, lost his parents. I got the sense that both of these men have been unloved for much of their lives. They have just been trying to survive and they've never known real connection until they meet. I get the sense that this could be the first time they've ever opened up to someone else and talked about their lives. Maybe no one else cared up to then. Maybe nobody asked about them or wanted to know them. I think I've said it in other episodes. It's very powerful when somebody wants to know you, when someone chooses to know you, asks questions about your life, wants to know who you are, and wants to be part of your life. That is a beautiful thing. It doesn't have to happen within the context of romance, but just feeling connected to another person and feeling like you matter. And not all of us get to experience that. It's not something that I've ever really known 
honestly. The only unconditional love that I've really known is from my parents. So I can relate to that loneliness that Ennis and Jack probably feel. They have the the first sex scene between the two of them. It's sort of unexpected. I mean, you know it's going there. You know there's this sexual attraction between the two of them, but it, it still comes from nowhere. <laughs> I was a bit shocked by it. And this is a scene I wanted to talk about because I remember seeing it when I saw the film in the theater. My mom and I went to our local theater back in 2005, Regal Cinema. It was at the mall near us. I don't know why we decided to go see Brokeback Mountain, but we did. This, of course, was what I would call the before of my life. It was 2005, so it was before my father's death. I always cut my life into two portions before his death and after his death and I imagine the innocent Jack think about their lives in that way too before broke back after broke back because of that defining experience so my mom and I went to the movie theater to see this this sex scene this love scene was really unexpected to me I was around 15 16 years old lived in a small town, small conservative town in the South, in North Carolina. You have to remember that at this time, there was not widespread access to the internet. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. I didn't have a computer at that time. The only time I got on the internet was at school. Your life was really, when it came to the media that you consumed, it was television mainly or if you bought DVDs or you went to the movie theater. That's the way you saw things. Or if you had premium cable like Showtime and HBO, you would see maybe more edgy, edgier things that were on those networks. We didn't have HBO or Showtime. I had never really seen two men have sex or kiss. I will be honest. It's not something I had come across up to that point in my life. And it was just different. I think in mainstream media, we will see lesbians sexualized. We will see women sexualized. So I think in a lot of movies, you would probably see two women kissing. It is something that is widespread. That doesn't mean that it's easier to be a lesbian or anything because now lesbians have to deal with the sexualization and the objectification of their sexuality, right? And that's terrible and it's wrong and it shouldn't happen. And lesbians or girls kissing, it's used for the male gaze. It's used to satisfy men's pleasure and something that they want to look at. It has been less mainstream to show men kissing or men simulating sex in movies. We did not see it in Philadelphia. We did not see it in a lot of mainstream films about gay men. I had not come across it up to that point. And I feel like I sound really sheltered saying that. So this was a shocking moment for me. I will be honest, it's not something I'd ever seen. And I thought it was really beautiful. I thought, wow, these two men are kissing and loving each other. It was a really, I want to say it was a powerful experience for me to see two men loving each other. We don't often see that. Not only do we not see men kissing or having sex with each other, We don't often see men just being tender, whether it's with each other or a woman. We don't often see men vulnerable. And I feel like we saw Jack and Ennis in that way in this film. So I don't want to reduce the film to the sex. I try not to do that when I'm talking about films. What I'm saying is that this was an experience that I still remember, that I still remember seeing this and thinking that is beautiful. 
That is amazing to see that, to see two men holding each other, kissing each other. Now, the first sex scene is quite kind of violent. It's it's shocking in its violence in a way, honestly. I guess I'm talking more about the more loving scenes later on in the film, but this first sex scene where Jack takes Ennis's hand and puts it on his privates and like all of a sudden Ennis springs up and he's shocked and he bolts up immediately and it's like this dance between the two of them it's almost like they're fighting that desire until they give into it and then and then Ennis gets on top of Jack and they have sex that way they don't even kiss in this scene it's almost primal it's more sex than love I think this scene in particular but I think the loving the more loving scenes definitely happen later on you can feel that resistance and that's something that they have to get over at first I think there's a fear of what this means what it says about him Ennis I mean this could be Ennis's first time with a man I don't know. We don't know a lot about Ennis's past. It's not clear, but obviously the the desire is mutual and it's been there between the two of them the whole time. But there is a violence about it at first because they're not just fighting their desire. They're fighting like what they've been told that desire means, like what society has driven into them. The, the slurs against gay people, the idea that it's wrong, it's unnatural, it's an abomination, it's monstrous this is not what you should be feeling they're fighting all of that until they give into each other and allow themselves to have sex to fall in love but they also have to overcome all of that and later on when they're speaking about it they don't talk a lot about it Jack says it's nobody's business but ours Ennis replies you know I ain't queer Jack says me neither they're fighting that internal battle that they don't want to be what society has said a gay man is that a gay man is less of a man that he's inferior that he's worthless, that he's an abomination, all of these things that they have been told. Like I said, the film's not didactic. It doesn't beat you over the head, but you understand that these are two men living in a deeply homophobic society. That's what the story is about, is like the corrosive, destructive terror of homophobia and what it does to people's lives. And it is still with us. It is still embedded in our society. I just watched a series on Netflix. Speaking of Netflix series, (laughs) they actually do really good series, especially when it comes to true crime. I will be honest. Some of the best true crime series I've seen in the last few years have been on Netflix. I just watched the series, The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez, and it's about this young boy. He was eight years old in California, and he was eventually murdered by his mother and his mother's boyfriend. He was tortured for months on end. He was beaten and treated terribly by them and child services were aware of it and they did not remove him from the home and he ended up dying and being murdered by these two people. Part of the reason or the main reason that they treated Gabriel so poorly was that they believed that he was gay. It was, I think, rooted in homophobia of the fear that this little boy was gay and that they needed to beat the gay out of him, that they needed to hurt him 
and teach him a lesson, I guess, because he was gay. He had no protection against them as an eight-year-old little boy. And then a few years later after his death, not far from where Gabriel lived, another little boy was also killed by his parents or one of his parents, and they also believed he was gay. So this is real homophobia is real. It is with us. This is not going away. And we all know about stories that have been out there in the news about people attacked for being gay. I never want to talk like this is something in the past when there is still a call, still a price to being gay in our society. Later on, there's another love scene and where Ennis and Jack are in the tent together. And this is when they finally like kiss. <laughs> they show that tenderness with each other. It's not just sex. You can feel Feel the connection there. They're more like making out. And there's something about Ennis in this scene where it feels to me like this might be the first time he's been able to engage with his desire that he's probably had all his life. He seems to sort of like sink into Jack to like melt into him and surrender to him. I love the passion of this scene. I personally, when it comes to love scenes or sex scenes, I prefer ones that are more passionate rather than really sexual, I guess. I don't know. Like, I love when people are touching, when they're holding each other, when they're kissing really deeply, when you can feel like the hunger and the desire that they have for each other, and they're just touching and holding and like skin to skin. I love that. I love seeing depictions like that. It's like they drink each other in, in this scene. I absolutely love it. You can feel that connection between the two of them. And what I meant to say earlier about nature and I, I don't know why I forgot, was that Brokeback Mountain gives Ennis and Jack privacy. It gives them seclusion. It gives them the space to be together freely without worrying about being seen or spied on. Because once they're trying to get together in the real world, it's much harder. Where do you go? What do you do? There's always people watching. That was part of life back then. Like, what do you do? When they're in Brokeback Country, I guess you could say, or when they're on Brokeback Mountain, that's not their worry. They can just be together but they don't realize that the guy that hired them for the job, Aguirre, that's what they call him, that he sees them one day, that he's looking through his binoculars, I guess, to check on them. And he sees them wrestling sort of semi-naked and he knows, but nature gives them that seclusion. I've talked about that in my episode on Morris. There's a scene in Morris by James Ivory where Morris and Clive, the two gay male characters are lying together in the grass and that's one of the few ways they're able to share their love for each other. I talk about it in my episode on Catherine Corsini's Summertime or La Belle Saison is the French title. The two female characters who are lesbians, they are together in nature in the rural countryside in France and that allows them some protection and you see that in Brokeback as well where nature is almost like a cover or it's like nature protects them from the outside world in a way on Brokeback they're kind of outside time they're outside the world they're just in their little bubble in a way and they're able to be together and love each other and have sex and all of that without the prying eyes of society without the judgment of society. It's almost like an Eden 
for them. Jack and Ennis are almost in this Eden with each other that is it's almost like a paradise away from the world and it gives us an idea of you know at that time in the 60s what the world could be that there could come a time there could come a world when two gay men could be together two lesbians could be together and open and there would be no judgment there would be no threat of violence and what a beautiful world that would be but Jack and Ennis at that time are not able to have that they are trapped that's why it also reminds me of Douglas Sirk so many of Douglas Sirk's films were about people who were trapped in their society trapped by societal expectations whether it's an older woman dating a younger man and all that heaven allows or the racism and imitation of life you feel the the pressure put on these characters that conflict between their inner desires their inner I don't know, sense of themselves and coming up against the prejudice of society, the dehumanization of society. And you feel that in Brokeback Mountain. And so Ennis and Jack have to leave Brokeback and they have this very intense scene that turns to violence. They start to brawl. Jack actually punches Ennis in the face and his nose starts to bleed everywhere and the blood gets on Jack's shirt too. It gets on both of their shirts and they're punching each other. It's scary to me how quickly men can turn violent. The world of men has always been mysterious to me and the presence of violence is always there and I just find that really frightening. But with Jack and Ennis, violence seems to be tied to their desire or the violence springs from the fear of the desire of what it says about them to love each other and not women because they're told their whole lives you're supposed to love women you're supposed to want to be with women but that's not what they want they want each other so they are outsiders always no matter what they do they will never be quote unquote real men though they play that part and they keep their homosexual homosexuality a secret. But in the eyes of society, they will always fail as men because they don't live up to that expectation and that ideal, that image of what a man is. And that scene of their altercation is very important because later on at the end of the film, when Ennis finds the shirts hanging in Jack's closet after Jack's death, he knows Like, he knew that day that his shirt went missing after it happened, after the fight. And he thought he had lost that shirt. And then it comes to find out that Jack had kept it all those years, hanging in his closet at his childhood home. It's just, oh God, that ending. I'll talk about the ending. And and their parting is so intense. Jack's driving away and Ennis is walking back home. And it's like, and he's going to get married to Alma in a few months. With each other, they don't show any emotion. They're just like, bye, (laughs) see ya. Um, It's very perfunctory, right? But as Ennis is walking, he becomes overcome. And he actually almost throws up and has this breakdown. And a man walks by him and Ennis yells at him, what the fuck are you looking at? Like, there's this this sadness and this emotion and then there's that volcanic rage that comes up that anger what are you looking at all of it is contained within Ennis I feel like with Ennis he does not know how to handle emotion he does not know how to handle his emotions and I think that the way men are forced to suppress emotion is truly terrible and it has terrible consequences for society for women where women are often the targets of men's violence because men are not 
really taught how to deal with emotion, how to deal with sadness or anger in a way that is not destructive towards the people around them. So Brokeback happens and that's the beginning of everything. These two men fall in love, then the rest of their lives happen. Ennis gets married to Alma, who's played by Michelle Williams. And I just want to talk a moment about a scene where Ennis and Alma are sledding together and Alma falls off the sled. They're wrestling a little bit, but it's not violent. It's very playful. He touches her face. It's very tender. And this scene was actually really important when it comes to the love story of Michelle and Heath Ledger. Diana Osana, and I think an oral history of the film, said this, quote, The first day we filmed that scene where Michelle's character is on the toboggan and falls off the sled and Ennis is with her, they're laughing. Well, on the third take, Michelle fell off the sled and at the bottom of the hill she was crying. She twisted her knee and we had to call someone to take her to the hospital. Heath was not about to let her go alone and as he was getting into the vehicle for her he was smoothing her hair back. I remember him looking at her and she looking up at him with these wide eyes. She was almost startled by the attention he was giving her but you could see it every day from there on. For him it was truly love at first sight. He was so taken with her. Unquote. I just love that story. So when I watched that sledding scene, I watched it with the knowledge that that's really what started the love, the love affair or the love story between Heath Ledger and Michelle Williams. And it was obviously a cosmic thing for her. And it was a big, important part of her life. And I think the way she talks about that loss and talks about that grief is still just incredibly moving. If you ever see Michelle interview doing Michelle Williams doing an interview, you should read it because every time she's in an interview, she's able to put her thoughts and emotions in the most gorgeous words. I would love for her to write a memoir or write a book. I think she could be a writer. I love Michelle Williams. Unfortunately, in Alma and Ennis's relationship, Alma is obviously subordinate. She is treated the way many women were treated back then. Everything is on her. That's what partly I love about this film is that we do get the women's perspective. We get Alma's. We don't get Lorraine's quite as much, but I do like that the film made space for Alma and what she goes through as a working class wife and mother and worker and what she's going through. When Alma and Ennis have sex, she wants to be like in the missionary position. She wants to be able to see him and see see his face and touch his face, he really abruptly and roughly turns her over to enter her from behind. She really gets no choice in the matter. Her desires are secondary to his, which is how it was back then. The The feminist movement, second wave feminism, was starting in the 1960s. Going into the 1970s, it was happening around the time the film is set, but I'm not sure how much that movement penetrated into rural Wyoming, right? Like a lot of women, a lot of working class women were still dealing with a lot. They didn't necessarily have a way out of it. And you can see the condition of women's lives back then in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and all of that. I think that seeing the pain of Alma and Jack's wives complicates this love story. And I think it complicates our feelings about the love story between Jack and Ennis. It does for me. I know that I felt differently about the film when I was a 15, 16 year old girl than I do now as a 30 year old young woman. When I was a teenage girl, I maybe 
wasn't thinking about Alma. I wasn't thinking about Alma's pain. I wasn't thinking about what the women of the film were feeling, even though at that age I was a feminist, of course. But hey, it takes a while for us to get to certain consciousness about things. I'm sure as a teenage girl, I was more enthralled by the romance and the story between Jack and Ennis. And I would say now that I I do care about Alma. And I do think that her story is important and what this does to her. They're really essentially living in the closet. That does not just affect Jack and Ennis. It affects the women in their lives too. And I don't think that should be ignored. All of them are victims of society's homophobia. If Ennis and Jack could live freely together, they wouldn't need to marry these women. Alma especially, it damages Alma. And it's it's a hard, hard thing for Alma to take. Jack Twist gets with Lorraine, played by Anne Hathaway. Time passes, it's 1967, and Jack comes into town to see Ennis, and they are going to go on a, quote, fishing trip, unquote, even though it's not really a fishing trip. As soon as Jack shows up at Ennis's home, the two of them are outside and they think they're kind of in a private area. They're very excited to see each other. It's like no time has passed. You can feel this excitement. You can feel like what takes over them when they're with each other and they embrace and you can feel the electricity and the longing. You can feel that they've thought about each other every day since they parted all these years, like five years now, that they've never really been complete because they've been apart. And now that they're together again, they are whole. Like you can feel that. These are two pieces. These are two halves. And when they come together, they make a whole. That's how you feel about Jack and Ennis. That's how I feel about them. But that passionate kiss comes with a cost because Alma walks out and sees it. And that's the moment when she finds out that Ennis is gay, that he's cheating on her as well. And she just has to accept it. Like, what is she going to do? She doesn't, she freezes. She's in shock about it. She probably doesn't know how to process it. Doesn't have the language for it of what she's seeing. I just imagine like, what must she be thinking? And I appreciate that the film gives us that perspective, gives us her perspective. And Michelle's acting, as I said, her face is full of devastation. It is palpable. It is palpable. You can feel it through the screen. It just throbs and radiates right there in her face that her world is coming apart by seeing this. The betrayal that she feels. Ennis, he goes back inside like later on. It's a few days later. Like him and Jack get together at a motel and then he goes back home and he takes a few things and he says he's going to be gone for several days and Alma just has to accept it. She's left with the kids. She's left on her own for several days. She's got to take care of the house. She's got to work. The million things she's got to do as a wife and mother and he just goes off and leaves her and she knows exactly what he's doing. The thing about Michelle Williams, she does not have a big part in this film. She's not on screen a lot, but when she is on screen, it's incredibly powerful. The look she gives, the barely contained anger, the frustration, the desperation, the struggle, just the way her hair looks. Her hair is all like tangly and like she she looks haggard. She looks exhausted. She looks overwhelmed. She doesn't want him to leave. She doesn't want him to betray her, but she can't show that. And she just cries after he leaves. She like buries her face in, um, in, in her daughter. She's holding her daughter. You can just feel the heartbreak. When Ennis and Jack go on their fishing trip, this is when Jack 
brings up the idea of the two of them living together and having a ranch. And Ennis rejects it. First of all, because they have families. They have wives and children. Ennis is a responsible person. And Ennis has a sense of his, of his obligations. He knows that he has an obligation to his children. And he is always involved in his children's life from what we see in the film. And he's actually really close to his kids. His two daughters, especially Alma Jr., uh, played by Kate Mara. In an early role for her, I think. Ennis is not willing to walk away from that. And also, when Ennis was a child, there was this story where he lived about these two men, these two elderly men, who did own a ranch. And one of them was found dead in a ditch. He said he was, this guy was pulled around by his penis until it came off. It's very graphic. We see the image of the man and it's very graphic. And Ennis's father actually took Ennis and his brother to see the corpse of this dead man in the ditch. And it was obviously to send a warning and to send a message to his son. So Ennis feels like there's no way they can live together and be seen together. And Ennis says, if you can't fix it, you got to stand it. Ennis has, has been terrified his whole life, I think, of this thing that he feels because of what his father showed him. His father showed him, this is what happens to somebody who does these things. This is what you should not be. Because if you are this, you are not human. You are subhuman. You are worth murdering and killing because you do this. And that's a very visceral thing. That's That would haunt you for the rest of your life. And so even though Jack is willing to walk away from his family, he's willing to put it on the line and go and do this and live this way. Ennis is not. He and Jack are different in that way. Eventually, Ennis and Alma get divorced. There's a scene one Thanksgiving where Alma reveals that she knew. She knew about Jack and Ennis. Because the cooler where he put the fish or the fishing line, she'd put a note on it and the note was still there. And she knew. I guess in that moment, Alma, Alma's away from Ennis. You know, she's married. She's about to have another child with the man who, like the store manager, the grocery store manager where she used to work. Or maybe she still works there. And I think she just wants Ennis to know, like, I know what you did. And he becomes enraged that violence is still in him. You know, I wonder with Ennis, maybe with men in general, like I wonder sometimes if men fight just to be touched or to touch, just to make contact with another person. Honestly, the only acceptable way for men to touch is through violence or through sports and athletics. Ennis's violence is just so intense. Maybe he wants the pain of a punch. Maybe that's all that can make him feel. And he's so zoned out and numb for most of the film. He tries to date other women, like he dates Linda Cardellini for a little while, but he seems kind of indifferent to her. He's just sort of wandering around, staggering around, drifting around because Jack is like his anchor. Jack is, everything orbits around Jack in a way. And and for Jack, everything orbits around Ennis. And these two men, they think about each other. They long for each other. They miss each other. Jack talks about at one point, you know, he misses him so much and it gets really bad and stuff like that. What do they do? They're just constantly fighting against the pain that has been caused. I want to talk about the, the, I wish I knew how to quit you scene. We have to talk about it (laughs) because I love this scene. I, 
I know that that phrase has been sort of lampooned and it's turned into a joke, but I think it is incredibly poetic, incredibly heartbreaking when you see the scene itself. This is much later in their relationship when a lot of years have passed. They're much older at this point and they go on another trip. And the thing about Jack and Ennis that I want to say, it's sad to watch them age. It's sad to watch them go from these 20-year-old guys full of energy and promise and, and to see what they've kind of become. It's hard to watch their lives go by and them not be together. You see the you see the toll that it's taken on them. Their lives have taken very different paths. They have class differences. Jack becomes upset when Ennis can't come on a trip for many months, but Ennis has to work. He can't take off when he wants. In this scene, Jack says that he wishes they could go to Mexico. Ennis says that he knows what men like Jack do in Mexico, and if he finds out what Jack's been doing, that he'll kill him. Ennis stands there and threatens to kill Jack. This is intense. And that's when Jack makes his speech about needing more than what Ennis can give him and how he kind of goes to Mexico to get those needs satisfied when really Ennis is the one that he wants. That's when he says, I wish I knew how to quit you. And it's become a punchline, a joke, but it's profoundly moving to me, even to this day, the sentiment that it expresses. Love that has turned to hate. Desire that is addiction. Something you can't get out of your veins. You hate someone because you need them and you can't have them. That's what Jack feels for Ennis. The love of his life, who he's had to spend most of his life without, only meeting a few times over the course of 20 years. Likewise, Ennis starts to cry and wishes that Jack would leave him alone. Perhaps he wishes that Jack had never taken his hand that night in the tent all those years ago because of the nuclear reaction it set off, the way it shattered his life, and he could never put the pieces back together. Love is not easy when society condemns that love and says that it's wrong, immoral, disgusting, and an abomination. They've had to live with their love for 20 years, but also their hate for what they are because they were told that it was monstrous and sick. In a way, they blame each other, but we as the audience, I think, know that the blame rests solely on the homophobic society that they live in. Jack and Ennis should be together. It's a miracle that now many gays and lesbians can be together at all, and they don't have to endure this level of secrecy and repression. And activists are still fighting for recognition of gay love in all its beauty and richness. That will never stop. In the end, you feel sad at what the world has done to Jack and Ennis. Two men who have loved each other and wanted to spend their lives together, the only lives they will ever have. And we see Ennis collapse and Jack holds him. It's all so much bigger than them. What they want at that time is impossible and really unthinkable. To have a ranch together, to live together, to be with each other, it's unthinkable. And the pain is overwhelming inside Ennis. I think they're broken. I think they love each other, but I don't know if they're really able to love anyone else except maybe their children. Ennis definitely shows love for Alma Jr. and his other daughter, and their scenes together are very tender and beautiful. She loves him so much, and I wonder if Alma Jr. senses something about Ennis, senses like, maybe she senses that brokenness. I don't know. The film shows that brokenness along with the love, the passion, the longing. The film shows the love 
love, but it doesn't turn away from the wreckage that comes about because of that love. Because in that scene, what's so heartbreaking with Jack and Ennis is like, there's not just the love there. There's the pain. There's the, I wish I knew how to quit you. It's the, I love you. I've loved you for 20 years, but look what you've brought into my life. (laughs) Look at the pain you've brought into my life. Love and hate are there. And it's sad. It's sad that they would ever resent each other or hate each other. But I think what they hate is, and maybe they can't put it into language, is they hate what society, how society has kept them apart. They hate that they live in a world where they can't be together and they can't change that world because two people can't change it. They have to endure it. They have to get through it somehow. And it's like it's killing them inside. It's like it's slowly killing them. They don't know how to really love anybody else except each other. And even then the love that they have is tinged with some of that resentment and some of that hate because if they hadn't fallen in love on Brokeback, they wouldn't have had to go through 20 years of this kind of pain. But at the same time, it's made them who they are. That summer or whatever, that season on Brokeback Mountain, they know that it defines them. They know that it has shaped every part of them down to their cells, rearranged their DNA, gone into their bones, this love, this connection. But it's also been so damaging to their to their lives, to the women in their lives. They're part of this. Their pain and suffering is part of this. All because this love was unacceptable. This love was unspeakable between two men, between two women. That was unspeakable and unacceptable and worth death worth being killed over, worth being physically attacked over. It's horrific. It's horrific to even think about it. My favorite scene of the film is after they've had this big discussion and broken down and I wish I knew how to quit you, then they have to leave. And Ennis has to drive away back to his job. The thing is, is that this is the last time they will see each other. That's also what makes the I wish I knew how to quit you scene so poignant and so heartbreaking is that that is the last time they'll ever be together because Jack later dies. And my favorite scene comes as Ennis is driving away. And the way it looked to me was that Jack is thinking back to this memory. There's this flashback to one brief moment on Brokeback Mountain. They're young. Jack is standing by the fire. He's barely awake. And Ennis comes up from behind him and puts his arm across Jack's chest. And they just stand there together with Ennis holding Jack, their bodies next to each other for this one moment in time. And you can feel the love. You can feel the warmth of their bodies together. You can almost feel what it must feel like for Jack to have Ennis's arm around him in that moment. And then Ennis walks away and leaves. He has to get back on the horse and Jack watches him leave with so much love and longing in his eyes. And then we see Jack in the present and now he's older, angry, watching Ennis drive away again, leave again. And there's just something about that memory. And it seemed like that was maybe Jack thinking back to that moment of just the two of them standing there in that embrace by the fire, that one moment just suspended forever. And I think it it's kind of about remembering a perfect moment in your own life that you never wanted to end 
I think we all have those and I think that's why this scene is so poignant is because of that and also because it's it's their last meeting. Ennis gets word that Jack has died later on and he calls Lorraine and I think Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway does not have a big role in this film but this scene is probably her greatest moment when she's on the phone with Ennis and she tells him about what happens. She says that Jack was changing a tire. He got hit in the face by something by the hubcap or something and he lands on his back and he ended up drowning in his own blood but what we see is I think we see Ennis imagining something else. Roger Ebert made a good point in his review, his really great review of Brokeback Mountain. He wondered if what we were seeing was what really happened to Jack or what Ennis imagines happened to Jack. We see on the screen men attacking Jack, but to me it looked like what Ennis described about that man in the ditch that his father showed him who was murdered. The group of men, the wounds to the face, the damage to the genital area. I feel like maybe what Ennis is imagining is influenced by what he witnessed as a child and maybe he he thinks that what happened to Jack was like a hate crime that maybe Lorraine is lying and trying to cover up what really happened to Jack. I don't know. You're not totally sure how to take the scene. Is it really what happened to Jack or is it what Ennis imagines or it's Ennis's worst fear and he's merging it with what he saw as a child. When she tells him that Jack wanted his ashes scattered on Brokeback Mountain, he tells her, well, that was that was the time that we herded sheep back in 1963. And when he says that, everything washes over her face. She puts it all together in that one second and it all clicks. She gets it now. Like all the trips that Jack took to Wyoming, which is a really long way from Texas, why he wants his ashes scattered there. Like she gets it in a second. She sees what it means and she knows. And just like Alma, she comes to this knowledge and it probably makes her question the entire relationship. Did this man love me the way I thought he did? Did we have this connection, this love that I thought we did? You know, the movie doesn't go any deeper, but you just see it on her face that this has shaken her, shaken her to her core because she didn't know any of this. Ennis goes to visit Jack's parents. He goes back to Jack's childhood home. This ending is probably one of the most heartbreaking endings of a film ever. I truly believe that and yet it's one of the most poetic probably. I still remember it. Oh, it's It gets me every time I watch it. It's not the last last scene but it's almost the last scene and we also learn that Jack may have had another relationship with a man because Jack's father when he's talking to Ennis says that the way that they know about Ennis is that Jack used to talk about him and Ennis coming there and making a ranch together and then in the last few years Jack had been talking about another man but I always feel like no matter what man Jack was with, that man was always just a substitute for Ennis. That Ennis was always the one. Ennis goes into Jack's room and in the closet, that's where he finds the two shirts from that day when they had that violent altercation when they were having to leave Brokeback Mountain. When Jack punched Ennis in the nose and he bled, and he bled all over his shirt and he bled all over Jack's shirt. I think it's interesting that there's blood on the two shirts. It's almost like this mingling of their blood. It's almost symbolic to me they've become one with each other. Like I said, it's like these are two halves that make a whole. These are two halves of a 
person that make one whole person and I think like there's something symbolic about the shirts being hung on one hanger that the shirts are together and it's like one person that's what they create together that oneness that wholeness that unification I guess I think that's beautiful it also occurred to me that the shirts were able to hang together all that time but Jack and Ennis couldn't be together so they couldn't physically be together but it's like these objects that once belonged to them were together and there's something symbolic about that too and Ennis just stands there holds the shirts to his chest almost like you know he would hold Jack if Jack were there it's one of the most powerful images of grief that I think I've ever seen this is a scene of grief he has lost Jack he has lost the body that once filled this shirt and I think any of us know the charge or the electricity in a garment of clothing that was once worn by somebody we love I still have my father's some of my father's shirts and some of his clothing it's in my closet right now I rarely take it out or take them out I rarely look at pictures of him it's just too devastating it like blows me apart I feel like some bomb has gone off in my body when I look at pictures of him or I look at or I touch his objects uh, touch his clothes so this scene is about Ennis grieving has Ennis been able to grieve up to this moment I don't know if he has but in this moment of holding Jack's shirt that's when he grieves and he doesn't just grieve the death of Jack he grieves the death of their love he grieves the 20 years they couldn't be together he grieves everything that is lost you know I wonder does the shirt still smell like Jack can Ennis see that day so clearly again even though I know Jack said I wish I could quit you I wish I knew how to quit you and Ennis said well why don't you just leave me alone you know that hatred that came out that pain it's hatred that comes from pain right even though they said those things they still deeply loved each other and the thing is is would they give up the love say they could have just never met and just lived their lives would they choose to do that or would they choose to have known this love that radically transformed them and changed them and defined their lives and haunted their lives like would you rather just go through life never knowing that love Or would you decide to know the love despite the pain that it brings? And I've thought about that. It's like, I've thought about the pain and the grief of losing my dad. And I've thought about some days I wish I'd never had a father. Because if I hadn't known him, then I wouldn't know the grief. And I wouldn't know the pain. But he was a wonderful father and a wonderful man. So in order for me to not have the grief... I'd have to not have him and I wouldn't know the love. And so I have to take the grief because it means I have the love. Even if I could go back and change it and say, I never knew you, like I never had had a father just to spare myself the terrible anguish and the pain of losing him because the grief is so great because the love was. We grieve the people that we love deeply. We grieve the people who were everything to us. We grieve because of love. And so for me to give up the grief, I'd have to give up the love. And I can't, I mean, first of all, I can't do that. I can't go back in time. I never will be able to. But it also means that you have to live in a way where you accept love and you embrace love, even though you know that it comes with loss, that it comes with vulnerability 
and it comes with pain and you must accept that on top of everything else. You should never not love or keep yourself away from love because of your fear of loss or because of the fear of the pain that it will bring to lose this person. That is what I take from it. I think with Jack and Ennis, even if they could go back and change it, even if they could go back and never have met, I think they would still choose to have met. Because while that love brought so much suffering, and it really did, it brought suffering to them, to Alma, to Lorraine, to so many people, that love was what defined them. And to know love at all is, it's worth living for. It's worth dying for. And when I was watching this scene, I thought of that. I thought of, even though he felt so much pain, in the end, I know that he's grateful that he knew Jack, that he had Jack, and that he knew the love that Jack gave to him and that he gave to Jack. And I thought of a Raymond Carver poem. I love Raymond Carver. He was a big discovery for me in 2019. I read his collected poems in 2019. I've never been the same. I'm gradually reading his short stories and they're absolutely stunning. I have literally sat and read Raymond Carver uh, stories and wept. (laughs) Raymond Carver is very important to me at this point in my life. And his poetry is very powerful as well. If you haven't, I'm sure a lot of you know him as a short story writer. I definitely recommend his poetry. I thought of this Raymond Carver poem and it's called Late Fragment and it goes like this. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. And so I think that's what will stay with Ennis, is that he was beloved on this earth with Jack. And at the end, after he hears about Alma Jr. getting married, he's living alone in a trailer. He's never remarried because Jack was the love of his life. And she leaves and he goes to his closet, opens it up, opens it up and there are the two shirts hanging together, along with what looks like a postcard of Brokeback Mountain, and he just stands there looking at it. I don't have anything else to say. This film is about so much homophobia, loneliness, connection. I truly believe that Jack and Ennis found a connection with each other that they couldn't find with anybody else. It's about an event in your life that haunts you forever, haunts you until the day you die, that shapes you and creates you for better or worse. But in the end, it's a love story. And it's about Jack and Ennis, the love they found, the love they lost, the love that Ennis holds on to even after he loses Jack. I think it can be a a comfort to all of us to see that kind of love that endures, that lives on despite the pain of it and the grief of it. It's just, ugh. A masterpiece. I still love it. Still cry about it. Still get emotional. I hope you liked my episode. And I'd like to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons. David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Till, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.